Hello, everybody, and welcome in to the newest edition of the Just In Time Sports Podcast. I am your host, Justin Jackson, and in this week's episode, we'll be talking about the NFL and what's going down there. We'll be talking about the NBA and what's happening as they're flying towards the playoffs. We'll be talking about college basketball, and also, there'll be uh, our best for last. Now, I hope you guys follow the Twitter page at Dayton Sports. Keep all your breaking news, find out before your friends know, and definitely make sure that you know and follow that. And also tell your friends about us and subscribe on iTunes, Apple Podcasts, and Spotify. Now I hope you guys sit back and get ready to learn something. Welcome into the show. It is so great to for you to join us this morning. This Friday morning is when this will come out. Uh, so it's so great for you to join me today as we talk about several sports topics. We are into the point we're in kind of a golden age now of sport with the NFL taking more and more real estate of the calendar year. You've got the NBA in full swing. Baseball is back. College basketball is on Final Four weekend. You've got uh, college baseball is ramping up. I mean, so many different sports are happening right now all over your coverage. We're not too far away from the WNBA season. So this is absolutely spectacular uh, for a sports commentator, for a sports fan in general. There's going to be live action all the way on. You had World Cup qualifying not too long ago. Uh, the USA disappointed us again, but <laughs> you had World Cup qualifying not too long ago. So this is huge as far as a time period where, you know, sometimes we get to the doldrums of summer where it's nothing ever baseball. No offense to baseball, but it's no live action but baseball. And right now we've got so many lives what's happening. But we're going to start off with a sport that's actually officially not in season. And that is the NFL, because we are right around the corner from the NFL draft, uh, less than a month away, actually, uh, the NFL draft at the end of this month. We're only a few weeks away from the NFL draft. And of course, when there's an NFL draft, what happens right around there, especially this year with the NFL Combine, we've got NFL Pro Day bonanzas. We have Zach Wilson, who put on his throwing exhibition with a whole lot of mobile throws. He specifically said, I wanted to show what I can do that I don't believe anybody else in this class can do. That was a lot of off-platform throws. Uh, Justin Fields say, I'll see your off-platform throws. I'll raise you some more, and I'll do further distance ones. So the throw Zach Wilson, everybody raving about, was when he rolled left, stopped, flipped his hips, and threw it back right. It was about 45 yards on a post pattern going right. Justin Fields said, I'll see that, and I'll raise you one. He rolls left, barely flips his hips, and fires at about 65 yards on a line. Uh, to Chris Olave, who's one of his receivers, who should be a pretty good pro receiver himself, and dropped it right in the bucket. Uh, Justin Fields also ran a 4.45, I want to say, in the 40-yard dash time. So let's say he's a 4-4 runner. Uh, you've got Kyle Pitts, who measured in at 6'5", 245 pounds, with 6'5 and 5'8". So let's just call it 6'6", 245 pounds and gaining weight. He ran his at a 4.44". Um, he has longer arms than Calvin Johnson. He has bigger hands than Calvin Johnson, and he's just about as fast. And also, he plays tight end. So just think Darren Waller on like steroids. Darren Waller 3.0. 
He's a little bit taller than Darren Waller, a little bit heavy, a lot heavier than Darren Waller, and he's longer than Darren Waller. So, I mean, like I said, just think of Darren Waller um, 3.0, if you will. Skip 2.0. <laughs> it's good. Darren Waller 3.0. You have LSU put on an absolute show with their pro day. Jamar Chase ran a 4.3840 with a 42-inch vertical jump. He did well in the receiver drills and definitely made his case why he should be the number one receiver in the draft, even after sitting out and opting out, rather, last season. Terrence Marshall of LSU, who was expected to be maybe an early day two selection, round two, maybe in the top 45, he may have slid himself up into the bottom of the first round. He also ran a 4-3-8-40, had a 39-inch vertical leap. He's a little bit bigger receiver than Chase. He, he measured at 6'2", uh, about 220 pounds, as opposed to Jamar Chase, who's about six feet, six feet and a half, uh, a little over 200. I think he weighed in at 201 pounds. So it is an absolutely spectacular pro day season. What's been going on now? Of course, you don't have the combine. You're depending on a lot of hand times. So like Skip Bayless always jokes to Shannon Sharp, like, oh, yeah, I remember the Cowboys didn't draft you because they said you hand timed at 4-8. Shannon Sharp's response is always, yeah, but I, I own the record for the longest play in NFL history. The longest catch in for history, which was mostly catch out run after catch if you've ever seen the play. Uh, it was like a 99-yard pass, but it was 75 yards after Shannon had the ball in his hand. Um, and so now we may be getting it a little bit backwards. So with the laser time, once you set your first movement on the laser, it starts the time. And when you cross that laser at the 40-yard dash, your time stops. So... Maybe it depends on who's timing you. Maybe a scout says, okay, when his foot moves, that's when I'm going to start it. Or maybe his says, you know, when his head bucks, that's when I start it. So one guy may have 4-4-4 four, four, four for Kyle Pitts. The scout next to him can have 4-4-8. Four, four, the scout next to him can have 4-4-1. Four, four, and so it just depends on which scout you're getting your time from, from where you're reporting. And then oftentimes, sometimes they'll go back and they'll, you know, pull up a super, super slow-mo video. And that's how they'll figure out the time because they'll do it off video. Um, so there's definitely something to look out for in terms of these, you know, 40 yard dash times. I believe it's double the people this year have run sub 4 4 as opposed to last season. Um, Isaiah Simmons, uh, the do it all player for the Arizona Cardinals, he said that it is the fastest drive class he's ever seen with a couple laughing faces on Twitter because everybody's making the remark of, man, everybody's doing a 4 4 5. Everybody's running a 4-3-8. Everyone's running a 4-3-7. Everyone's running a 4-4-2 or whatever. And, you know, what's the big difference between people doing it last year and people doing it this year? And the biggest difference is last year, everybody had the laser times. You know, we've never seen a draft class as fast, which is a little odd in the one year where nobody's doing it at a central location besides, you know, the House of Athlete Combine or something like that. When nobody's doing it at a central location, Everybody happens to have these 4-4, these 4-4-2s um, times. Now, do I think these times are drastically off? No. I, I do believe Jamar Chase is a 4-3-ish runner. I believe that. I did not believe Terrace Marshall was. I believe he might have timed in at 4-4-2, 4-4-3. Not a huge jump from 4-3-8, but 4-3, saying I ran a 4-3-8, saying I ran a 4-4-anything is a little bit different in terms of an NFL production, NFL scout 
and what you could be at the NFL level. So that is definitely something to watch out for in terms of, you know, take these 40 yard dashes with a grain of salt, not a big grain, but a little grain of salt just because of no one's getting them in a central location. Um, the draft, as we know, has already been shaken up with San Francisco flying up to three from 12 and for Miami going from 12, which they traded their pick to jump back up to six to get into the what they would consider the range of the weapons or what I would consider the range of the weapons. In which the weapons start flying off at maybe early as four, but no later than six, the receivers are going to start flying off the board and the tight ends. And so they came back up to be have either either the third pick of the litter from their weapons or the first pick of the litter, depending on how the quarterbacks and the offensive linemen move. And so when you look at a situation like that, and we're going to have a mini mock draft picks one through 12 in a second, when you think about a situation like that and how San Francisco has a small issue inside of the building, the issue is that the Shanahan's Mike and Kyle which obviously father and son, uh, Kyle, the head coach of the 49ers currently, Mike apparently has a lot of influx, influence rather in the building, legendary head coach, Broncos, Washington for a little while. Uh, I'm gonna say, uh, yeah, Washington, he had a couple other stops too, but most famously for Denver with John Elway, Shannon Sharp, Terrell Davis, Mark Lair, the rest of the crew. Um, they have a lot of influence in the building, obviously. So Kyle is the end all be all. And of course, since Mike's in the building, Mike's also pretty much usually on Kyle's side because Kyle is building his team in Mike's image. I mean, his system is Mike's, his coaching style is Mike. You know, everything he does is his father. It's not surprising. He, like Shannon Sharp always says, I watched Kyle grow up, you know, like, you know, Kyle grew up in the locker room winning and stuff like that with the Broncos. And so it doesn't shock me that A, Mike still has a major influence and helps him with the game plan and all the other stuff and B, that Kyle is trying to build a team in Mike's image. Um, so when that happens, of course, you think GM John Lynch. What does general manager John Lynch have in, uh, in control of? Probably day-to-day. So that way Kyle didn't have to think about it. But big decisions like franchise quarterback probably is going to be decided by Kyle Shanahan. Um, compensation, how much you have to give up, could be a Mike, it could be a John Lynch thing, rather. But Kyle's Mike is probably going to decide who we're going to give up this compensation for. So I believe flying up to three probably was a joint decision. Uh, there's reports that they never reached out to the Jets. So maybe they believe the Jets aren't coming off because they're picking a quarterback. Um, and so they flew up to three with Miami. And with the power structure as it's set up and the Shanahan's having end-all, be-all final say, um, the quarterback position will ultimately be decided by Kyle Shanahan. Now, for all we know, John Lynch could have leaked this to where if the if the wrong guy is picked, then blame the Shanahan's, not me. It wasn't me. I didn't do it. Um, because of the report specifically says the Shanahan's want one quarterback and John Lynch wants another. And with the Shanahan's having the ability to pick their guy, they're going to ultimately pick their guy. Now, the Vegas favorite currently is Justin Fields, which if Vegas says something and they put the, a betting line on it, I tend to go with Vegas. Vegas usually know what the hell they're talking about. They usually have very good reason for doing that. And I'm going to go with Vegas nine times out of ten. 
So Vegas picks, and I'm going to go with them. However, they're, I'm a big believer of whether it's smoke, there's fire, and there's a whole lot of smoke around Mac Jones being the quarterback at San Francisco at number three. Because let's, let's be honest, Trevor Lawrence is gone at one. Jack Wilson's probably gone at two. Sneak peek in my uh, mock draft. Number three, you'll have a pick of anybody you want on the board. So if you think Mac Jones is your guy, you just say, screw it, give up the draft capital, we'll go get Mac Jones, because the quarterback class next year, everybody knows is not great. I mean, it's going to be a couple of really, really overdrafted quarterbacks next year. Um, everybody knows the quarterback class is not great next year, so people may just give up the farm to come up. How many times in the Shanahan era is San Francisco, San Francisco going to be picking that high? Never. Or in life, I mean, due to injuries, they picked that high. If they had half the injuries that they had, they may have been teens and had, you know, no chance of convincing a Miami or a Philly or whatever to negotiate that deal to come down. So that is a situation to watch for in San Francisco. Um, the Bucks are cat wizards. <laughs> they have managed to retain everybody on their roster sans antonio brown so they are the first team in nfl history to retain all of their starters all 22 starters from a championship team uh not the first in history but the first in modern history i believe the last team to do it a 1970s um team that they retained their entire um roster or entire starting core rather Entire starting lineup, all 22 for the first time since, like, like I said, 1970. So that is huge for the Bucks. I mean, they did it with some Widgeter. They did a bunch of avoidable years. Like Tom Brady's cap hit is nine million dollars. I mean, he's gonna make 25. Uh, Levante David's cap hits like in the tank. His his cap hit something like two or three million dollars, and he's gonna make 13 this year. Uh, Shaq Barrett, his contract is stretched out so they can stretch his bonus out. And Dominican Susan one year, but he's a mercenary, so he kind of had to do it one year. You look at Leonard Fournette, his contract's one year, but it's only $3 million. Uh, you think about Devin White's on a rookie contract. Mike Evans is willing to move money around. Chris Godwin's on a franchise tag. Um, the only real guy that they have left to re-sign, in theory, is Antonio Brown. And they're in negotiations with Antonio Brown, but they're not close on money. I believe AB believes that he has one more big payday left, that someone's gonna give him, you know, maybe a two or three year deal with $30 million in it. You know, he believes he has one more big payday left. I believe that time has passed in his career, especially with his legal issues still pending. He has something uh, pending in December. So that is something definitely to look out for with the Bucks trying to retain. But now we are going together to do a mock draft simulator, or a mock draft rather, uh, when we will pick the first 12 picks in the first round. So we are going to do this, like I said, right now. We're gonna do it live, we're gonna do it together. I have not done anything in this so far. So we're gonna do the first 12 picks. Uh, not the whole first round, just the first 12 picks. Uh, we'll do another full first round one maybe a week out before the draft and then smoking may might do another one but this would be a first 12 pick mock draft and with the first pick obviously 
to Jacksonville. It is Trevor Lawrence, quarterback of Clemson. That is the easiest pick in this entire situation. Um, obviously, Jacksonville is going to pick Trevor Lawrence. We're going to move on there. Number two is where I disagree with the management's doing. So I clearly am a bigger Sam Darnold fan than management is because I always stick out with Sam Darnold and draft Kyle Pitts here. And then at 23, I believe the Jets next pick draft Terrence Marshall or somebody like that and just rock out with that situation. But where there's smoke, there's fire. And if San Francisco felt like they couldn't even call the New York Jets behind the number two pick, they must clearly know they're going to rock out with Zach Wilson, quarterback BYU, is going to be a Jet. For the third pick, I'm again, I'm going to go where there's smoke, there is fire. And I am going to say is Mac Jones for the San Francisco 49ers. Here is where the entire draft gets interesting. For instance, I have no trades in my mock draft, but I believe this is the first tradable pick. Atlanta sits at four. Contractually, they're stuck with Matt Ryan for at least next year. And to be honest, more like two years. So do you draft a quarterback here and say, hey, you know, Trey Lance or Justin Fields, sit behind Matt Ryan and learn. Here's a risk. You draft Justin Fields. Matt Ryan has a two-game bad streak under Arthur Smith, who's an offensive coordinator. And Justin Fields being from Georgia, the fans are going to clamor for Justin Fields to get on the field. If you draft Trey Lance, nobody really knows him, him tape-wise. Yeah, a few fans might clamor because the back of quarterback always gets clamored for. But it's not going to be the extensive pressure. But I don't see a world where four draft picks in a row are quarterbacks and where the original four teams I'm going to go with Kyle Pitts here. And they're going to take Kyle Pitts. That is what I'm going to say. And I'm going to push the button to submit the draft pick. Okay. For the fifth pick, we have the Cincinnati Bengals. If Kyle Pitts was here, I would say the Bengals would draft Kyle Pitts here. They couldn't pass him up. But they're going to protect Mr. Burrow coming off his injury. And they're going to draft Rashawn Slater who's out of the Midwest, out of the Big Ten, they're going to draft for Sean Slater. Number five from Northwestern, offensive tackle. Number six, the Miami Dolphins. This is going to be one of the easier picks. They're going to give Tua Tagovailoa, one of his old buddies, and they're going to go with Devontae Smith, and he's going to be the first receiver off the board to Miami because of that Miami connection. At pick seven, this is an interesting pick as well because your head coach is a tight ends coach. Again, this would be one of those, if Kyle Pitts was there, it would be a no-brainer. He would go here, in my opinion. However, you need something for Jared Goff to throw the ball to, because if Goff looks bad, which I honestly expect him to, and Matt Stafford looks amazing, which I honestly expect him to, you're going to look like the biggest dummies on planet Earth. And you're going to have your first-round pick going to be high, but then you're going to have the Rams' first-round pick in the late 20s. I mean, you're going to look like idiots. So I believe they go... Jamar Chase goes seven to the Detroit Lions. So pick eight for the Carolina Panthers is easy. It's going to be Trey Lance out of North Dakota State. I believe, just thinking about it, I believe that 
Offensive coordinator Joe Brady and head coach Matt Rule would like the big, strong, mobile clay that they can mold into their own image of the quarterback that they would like to have on the center. And so I believe that they go Trey Lance, quarterback out of of North Dakota State, goes to Carolina. Pick nine is interesting. Is incredibly interesting because it is the Denver Broncos. Now, Justin Fields is still on the board. Yes, we have agreed to that. Justin Fields still on the board. However, there's also floating out there Sam Darnold. So how much better do you think Justin Fields is than Sam Darnold? Because in theory, you could drive Patrick Chatain. You can drive Jalen Waddle, finish off your receiving core. You can go Panay Soul, finish into your offensive line when you have a good offensive line. What do you do if you are the Broncos? I believe if Justin Fields is staring them in the face, they cannot pass up Justin Fields. So they draft him at number nine. At 10, the Dallas Cowboys. Now, you need something that plays defense, specifically a corner. Derry Jones, like name recognition, this is easy. Patrick Sertain out of Alabama, the corner. Patrick Sertain, the second, excuse me, out of Alabama, the cornerback. The New York Giants. What do you need if you're in New York? You have a quarterback in, in your head. You have a quarterback, even though you won't draft another quarterback this high. You have a pretty solid offensive line. You got a receiver. You just pay one Kenny Galladay. You got a running back, obviously, in Saquon. You've got a defensive in. I believe Lennon Williams is defensive. You can move him in or outside. I believe they go corner here as well. And they go with Caleb Farley out of Virginia Tech. And at pick 12, you need a receiver for Jalen Hurts. You get one of his old buddies back from his past, and you pick up Jalen Waddle, wide receiver out of Alabama. And so you look at it, it's pick 13 now. Um, and Panay Sewell is still out there. Gregory Rosso is still out there. Michael Parsons is still out there. So a lot of talent still exists on the board, even after the 12 picks are off the board, which are as followed. Jacksonville, Trevor Lawrence, Jets, Zach Wilson, which I would not do, but hey, I'm not the Jets. San Francisco, Mac Jones, Atlanta, Kyle Pitts, Cincinnati, Rashawn Slater, Miami, Devonta Smith, Detroit, Jamar Chase, Carolina, Trey Lance, Denver, Justin Fields, Dallas, Patrick Sertain, New York, Caleb Farley, and Philadelphia goes with Jalen Waddle. And big scheduling news. The NFL approved the 17th game. So everybody got their 17th game announced. Everybody will play 17 games, obviously. So 16 matches were announced. I would not run through all of them. Uh, there's a couple pictures online. I posted on my Twitter, at uh, JTimeSports. I would not run through all of them. But just some interesting matchups. You've got Kyler versus Baker with... Um, Arizona versus Cleveland. You've got possibly the 49ers rookie quarterback against Joe Burrow. You have Carson Wentz versus Tom Brady. You have the Dallas Cowboys, which is one of the bigger brands and the the biggest brand in professional sports on the planet. And the New England Patriots. So that'll be an interesting game there. You have Green Bay versus Kansas City. Patrick Mahomes versus Aaron Rodgers. Insanity. You have Russell Wilson versus Ben Roethlisberger, and you've got the new look Rams versus the Baltimore Ravens. 
So it is a very interesting week of games. I'm so glad they gave this to us. I know some of the players fought back at it. Alvin Kamara being one of the louder ones. Uh, fighting back against the 17th game and saying how they disagree with it. Okay, A, you collectively bargained for it. So if you didn't like it that much, you could have gotten to take it out. B, incentive-wise, if I'm a player, I'm ecstatic. If I already have incentives in my contract, I'm in, I'm going crazy. Now, for future contract signees after the 17th game, they're going to bump the incentives up probably another sack or another 200 yards or another touchdown catch or something like that to make up for the 17th game. But if I already have incentives in my game, in my contract, I'm happy because that's another game to get those incentives. Uh, the physical wear and tear will have to be, you know, adjusted to uh, for running backs, linemen, linebackers, you know, high collision positions. They'll have to get used to the 17th game. But like I said, for guys getting incentives, incredibly happy if you are an incentive-based contract guy in the NFL. And you also get a bigger piece of the pie. Um, I believe the previous share uh, for the old TV deals, I believe, was 47.5%. It's been bumped up to 48.5%, which is a big jump when you're talking about we're already jumping up double for the TV contracts. Now we're going to add a percentage of that TV money back into the players' pockets. So that's huge when you're talking about billions of dollars overall. But up next, we're going to shift to the NBA and talk about what's going down there. All righty, and welcome back into the show. And before we go into the NBA, or I guess I say we should keep on the NBA, we have a little bit of breaking news. Uh, Auburn guard uh, Sharif Cooper has declared for the draft and will hire an agent. So he's gone. Uh, it was expected. He was a one-and-done guy in high school, probably since he was 15, 16 years old. When he turned his ankle and they said he wouldn't play the rest of the regular season, it was expected that he was done. Uh, it was insinuated by a few people that – he could have came back for the last couple of games, but why Auburn wasn't going to the tournament and he was not going back to school. So he is has declared for the NBA draft, joining other notables such as Kay Cunningham and Josh Christopher and a few other uh, undergrads have declared as well. But into the NBA, you guys know how we started. We're going to start off with a peek at those standings. So starting out east. We've got Brooklyn, Philly, Milwaukee, Charlotte, Miami, New York, Atlanta, Boston, Indiana, Chicago. And out west, we have Utah, Phoenix, the Clippers, the Lakers, Denver, Portland, Dallas, San Antonio, Memphis, and Golden State. Uh, now, just taking a look at these standings and some notable things, Utah has found their stride again. They have won seven straight. Uh, the Lakers are struggling without LeBron. They're 5-5 five and five in their last 10. Uh, they're trying to figure it out. Phoenix has won four straight. Denver has won four straight. Portland has won four straight. Um, New Orleans, who was having a pretty good run there, went without their big three last night. Almost beat a very scrappy Orlando team, uh, but they lost last night. They're 6-4 they're over their last 10. Um, sitting at... A game and a half back from the plan and from getting into the good plan, which is a 7-8 win. We only win one game. They are currently four, three and a half back. So they need to start making up some ground. 
Uh, San Antonio slipping back a little bit. A lot of teams at the bottom. Sacramento's on a roll. That's, they won seven of their last three. So that's who they're really, really competing against in terms of getting up. But the Pelicans can start stringing some wins together and see what they can do in terms of the play-in. Brooklyn has won four straight. They've had players in. They've had players out. They're officially, for the first time, I believe, in almost a decade, the sole owner of first place this late in the season. They've won four straight. Nobody else is really stringing any real amount of wins together out east. Uh, it's, it's coming into uh, the finish of the season. So many stars are out. And you've got guys trying to just get to the playoffs at this point, which helps a team like the Lakers. The Lakers have been without LeBron for a week and a half, and they've only lost one spot. Now, they are in real, real danger of losing a game, Denver and Portland winning a game, from being waking up being sixth. But they have a little bit of a cushion above a Dallas, above definitely above a San Antonio. They have a five-game cushion above San Antonio, a four-game cushion above Dallas, and if you look at it, they have a seven-game cushion basically on Memphis, a full seven games on San Antonio, and eight games on Sacramento. So they are in really no danger of not being at least in the play-in tournament, which is why they need to be when LeBron and AD comes back. They will need to just be in the play-in tournament so they can produce and succeed there. And if they can accomplish that, then the Lakers will be just fine. And I would feel really bad for Phoenix or Utah for getting the number one, number two seed, which is the goal every year. And then to, well, lose in four or five games to the Los Angeles Lakers on a, on a mission. It's really tragic, honestly. And if they and think about it, if the Lakers end up the seven or the eight seed, they were going to be actually they're probably on an easier bracket because now you is basically like being the one of the two seed. Instead of being the three or the four seed and having to fight through tougher matchups, you're effectively the one of the two seed because you're the seven or eight seed in this case. So that actually may be a little more advantageous to the Lakers to be seven or eight and to beat Utah or Phoenix as it sits right now and to take care of them that way. I mean, the Lakers are also a, a win away and a Clippers loss away from being third. So uh, they're in a pretty good spot there. They're holding it together without LeBron, AD, uh, the recently acquired Andre Drummond. Speaking of the recently acquired Andre Drummond, the era of the super team has returned. It was fun. I mean, what did we get, 18 months? Of where, the, you know, it felt like the NBA had made an asylum agreement where you're going to go in with duos. You had LeBron and AD. Kyrie and Katie, Harden and Westbrook, uh, Bill and Wall, whenever he came back from injury. You had um, all these duos, Giannis and Chris Middleton, um, Zion and Brandon Ingram, um, all these Aaron Gordon and Vucevic, uh, these duos that are running around the NBA, and then it's going to be, okay, who's going to have the best play on the floor? If you didn't have the best play on the floor, could you in turn survive with a good supporting cast and so having that situation in the nba we had the bubble oh how could i forget about Kawhi and paul george uh with also another duo uh, steph and clay were going to be a duo and being you know tatum and brown and we end up going to luke and kp we end up going to the bubble and you know mental things happen stuff like that and lebron and ad stood out on top well, 
we went to this season, everybody was really excited. All those duels I named were a year older. Now, we didn't know Zion and B.I. was going to be as good as they are. I mean, they're, they're leading two spots on the floor in terms of made shots. Uh, Zion leading the league in points in the paint. Brandon Ingram leading the league, I believe, in made mid-range shots this year. Our percentage or something like that. It's insane. Um, how efficient those two guys in from 15 feet and closer. When you have LeBron and Anthony Davis, we hoped that we were going to have Clay back. You know, we expected that. We got the new duo of Chris Paul and Devin Booker. We got, you know, like I said, Jalen Brown and Jason Tatum a year older. Chris Porzingis and Luka Doncic a year older and healthy. Ben Simmons and Joel Embiid, I missed them the first time for some reason. Simmons and Embiid, um, you have, you know, all these duos that were created that now are finally going to be on the court all at the same time. Everybody's going to have two stars. The top 16 teams in the league, the top 20 teams in the league will have two centerpieces. And then James Harden went and ruined that and forced his way to Brooklyn. And, well, the era of the super team has officially ushered back in with Brooklyn also acquiring via the buyout market Blake Griffin and LaMarcus Aldridge. And the Lakers say, we'll see your two agent superstars and get a budding star. And they answered with Andre Drummond off the buyout market as he was able to escape from Cleveland. And, well, just like it was when it was LeBron versus the Warriors, or like it was pretty much LeBron versus the West. We know who's going to be in the NBA Finals. And, well, it's going to be Lakers and Nets barring health. Now, if the Lakers are not healthy, then the West is wide open. Denver's there when they picked up Aaron Gordon. The Clippers are there with Rondo. You have the Suns and the Jazz might actually get out of the West and represent the West in the NBA Finals. The a non-healthy Lakers team is very, very beatable. And so I believe that it'll be, if I had to guess a team that would make it without the Lakers there, I would guess it would be the Clippers. They're the next most talented team. They have the they have the next best duo uh, in Paul, George, and Kawhi. So I would guess it would be the Clippers. Now, a topic that started making the rounds recently, uh, due to his own volition, J.J. Redick, formerly of the New Orleans Pelicans, now a member of the Dallas Mavericks, has a podcast. I can't think of what it's called. Don't particularly care at the moment. Um, he has a podcast, and he, on the podcast, they opened up about the trade because I reported it and others reported it as well that uh, J.J. Redick was negotiating a buy with the Pelicans, that they were on their way to a buyout. He was going to get bought out of his the rest of his contract. It wasn't that much money left. And then he would give back a little bit and then do what Andre Drummond did. Give back 747 grand or whatever and then make 747 grand with his new team so he don't really lose any salary. The Pelicans were working towards the buyout with J.J. His plan was to go to Brooklyn. That was that was, that was the plan. Because now he has a young child, I believe, uh, in school. School-aged young child in that, li- that goes to school in Brooklyn. And he wants to get back to the Northeast. So that way, on a day's drive, or let's just say, or he has an off day, he can drive from wherever he's playing to Brooklyn to be with his kids and stuff like that. Completely understandable. Um, but the NBA is a business. And ultimately, he was traded to Dallas. When the trade went, came, was released or was reported or I found out about it, I was a little shocked. As with a lot of Pelicans fans I talked to, were a little shocked um, that J.J. was traded. So a lot of them were happy. 
yay, we didn't have to buy all this money. You know, they may convince them to try and work out some other stuff. Um, he he wouldn't have to be bought out. Well, J.J. Reddick was furious about this because he said he was told by David Griffin before last season. Because apparently J.J. Reddick was looking to move on after last season. It was the first time he'd ever missed the playoffs. He didn't like the way the organization was heading. He didn't see them making the playoffs anytime soon because of the youth movement with Lonzo, with Brandon Ingram, with Zion, Nikhil Alexander-Walker, Kyra Lewis, Jackson Hayes, etc. He wanted to move on before last season. David Griffin talked to him. Hey, we got a new coach in Stan Van Gundy. Come in for a month. Come in for a month. If after one month you don't like it or you don't think it's a fit, we will work with you to move you to the Northeast or buy you out and let you go where you want to go. Okay. So JJ Reddick said, okay, that's fine. I, I owe it to the guys. I owe it to myself. I owe it to the new staff to give it a chance. He comes in for a month. He said, according to JJ, he says in November, he requested a trade. That he, okay, I'm out. I tried it. It doesn't work for me. I'm not even really getting any real minutes. I'm out. David Griffin said, okay, well, we had that agreement in place. Okay, you request a trade. Okay, we're good. Well, ultimately, as we know, J.J. Reddick gets shipped to Dallas along with uh, Nicola Melli uh, for James Johnson and um, Uwandu. I can't think of his first name, and I apologize. Weston Uwandu, I believe, is his first name. Um, that was the trade to Dallas. Well, as we all know, Dallas is, well, not in the Northeast. New Orleans, technically, is closer to the Northeast than Dallas is. J.J. Reddick was not happy about this. Uh, he went on his podcast and said he was lied to, that you don't think he's going to get any honesty out of that front office, et cetera, et cetera. Now, we, Griffin, David Griffin has a reputation from his days running the Cavs basketball operations as a straight shooter. Um, he, he didn't even straight shoot in his interview. He's a great interview because he's a straight shooter. He even said in his uh, last media, in a mass media session that he thought the way the Cavs were building around LeBron was unsustainable, but it had to be done because of the pressure LeBron put on you with the one plus one contracts. You had to do what he considered unsustainable moves because you had to keep winning with LeBron. And so he's trying to not do that with the Pelicans, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So David Griffin's a very straight shooter. Um, so I, I believe that maybe he did tell JJ, look, we're going to try, but Trading you for James Johnson, who started last night due to injuries, and Wes Owandu, who played his first game active and played a lot last night. Wes Owandu is a young player with some defense capabilities. Offensive game needs work. James Johnson is a wily vet who's tough as nails. He's going to probably be an MMA fighter after he retires from basketball. He's tough as nails, and he plays defense with something the Pelicans struggle with, as opposed to just buying you out. Is more it makes more basketball sense to do the trade. So I, I get it from both perspectives. JJ Reddick figured, okay, once I request my trade, I can start telling my family and my young child, I'm gonna be with you soon. I'm not sure yet, but I'm gonna get there. You know, I'm gonna get to Brooklyn, I'm gonna get to New York, I'm gonna get to Philly, I'm gonna get to you know some team in the Northeast. Unfortunately, now he's in Dallas. So um, I, I get where JJ Reddick's coming from. I didn't like. I never like 
stabbing, like getting one pop shot off on the way out. I've never been a huge fan of that. I've never been a huge fan of when like people, you know, get leave the company and bash the company on the way out. I just, it looks bad for me, uh, from my point of view. But you know, I respect the decision. I respect him doing it. I just they wasn't a big fan of it. I thought it put a bad light on David Griffin, who guys like LeBron has spoke very highly of. Um, now over his career, Zion, Lonzo, all of them speak highly of Griffin, the whole management team. So I wasn't a huge fan of the pop shot on the way out the door on the podcast. But hey, it is what it is. Um, hopefully he finds happiness in Dallas, even though he's still injured and currently not shooting well as a shooter. Um, so the Lakers are close on the men physically. Now, by close, I mean closer than they were. AD expected to be out another two to three weeks, but he had his basketball activity ramped up. LeBron is out another three to five weeks. So that is hopefully they can get AD back on the two and LeBron before the five. So that way you give AD a week or two to get his little sea legs in. So when LeBron comes to get his sea legs, playing 24, 27 minutes a night for the first couple of games getting back, AD's already there and can go 33, 34 to dominate to try and get wins. KD, according to report, is close to a return um, from his injury, which I believe had micro tears in it. Now, I have no hardcore sourcing on that, but that is the worst pulled hamstring on planet Earth. So I believe there was micro tears in the hamstring, just like I believe there's possibly micro tears in Anthony Davis's calf. Uh, because again, these would be the worst pulls or strains in the history of life. It's like when Steph Curry broke his hand and was out for the year. Yeah, like, I believe there's something else going on with KD's ha- uh, hamstring and AD's calf. I believe I believe it's micro tears. I have no definitive hardcore sourcing on that, but I would believe that it is micro tears. Um, and then there was a funny rumor going around uh, from Brian Windhorse. He, who's the aficionado of all things LeBron, has been that way since LeBron was in high school. He reported on a podcast or said on a podcast that LeBron started recruiting Steph Curry to join the Lakers during All-Star. So I guess once they finally going to be on the same team, LeBron had never shared a court with Steph as teammates. They've never done Team USA together. They obviously never played in the NBA together. As far as we know, they've never been on the same all-star team, even if they started switching the formats. As far as we know, LeBron James and Steph Curry, the first time they shared an NBA court or a basketball court together as teammates was the all-star game because they didn't even have all-star practice. So the first time they shared the court together as teammates was the all-star game. And apparently LeBron started recruiting Steph Curry. According to Brian Windhorst, he started talking to him about joining the Lakers, started recruiting him. Now, why is this even talked about really uh, it's talked about because Steph Curry had to offer the tiny three year $150 million contract extension last offseason and didn't do it so that would have tacked on three years to this current contract so it would have been this year next year plus three okay this offseason he has the opportunity to sign a four year $200 million plus extension which would be the next season and four more to lock him in basically as you will retire a Golden State Warrior. You will start and finish as a Warrior. Probably after that deal, you will retire, go off in the sunset, will retire your jersey, put up a statue, all that within the next 18 months. Okay. If Steph Curry does not sign that contract extension, you have a lame duck superstar. 
because money wise he'll only get five or six more million because he's making he's gonna make still like 40 million dollars in the last year and uh next year anyway like 41 or something like that so if he waits for the five year 250 million dollar deal okay he'll make what nine more million to steph curry that's not worth the wait um so there's no benefit to it I think if he doesn't sign that extension, him joining the Lakers has merit. Here's why. Steph Curry for five years went to the NBA Finals. Steph Curry, his last year in college, drug Davidson, I believe either to the Elite Eight or the Final Four. He is a winner. He has always won. He likes winning. LeBron James is aging. So if LeBron James is really recruiting you, you're thinking AD's already there, LeBron's gonna be there, I can go there, and us three, even as a brutal AD, an older LeBron and myself, we're gonna win the NBA championship every year we're together. What if he decides winning is more important than loyalty and he goes to the Lakers? First of all, the world would explode and, a, and an age group of fans would lose their minds because if you're between the age of 15 and 25 you had to draw a battle line in the sand curry or lebron and that was it it was sort of like when i was growing up you had to draw a battle line in the sand lebron or kobe you 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 could not say i'm a lebron fan but i like kobe no 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 you were either on team lebron or team kobe because we all figured eventually they were going to meet in the finals and you had to choose well curry and lebron actually met in the finals. So people my age, closer to 25 years, I'm 23, almost 24, but the people closer to my age was LeBron already. We already had LeBron. Now, there were some Curry fans in there, but we pretty much already had LeBron or we were still Kobe guys, but we had already drew a line in the sand. People younger than me was Curry because Curry was their thing. You know, was their guy. So they were Curry, but I mean, same thing. There may be some LeBron guys in that age group as well. There was a line drawn in the sand. So first of all, those two fan bases would have to merge. I, the same way LeBron had to merge with Lakers fans, who were Kobe people, we had that, 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 that was a merge. You would have Steph Curry and LeBron fans as a merge. You, I mean, the media would explode because the greatest shooter of all time goes to play with arguably the greatest player of all time and a top 10 big of all time, Anthony Davis. I mean, it would just be insane talent-wise all over the floor. The expectations would be through the roof. The hatred would be as well. Well, they'd be the biggest traveling show since the Heatles, and they'd probably be bigger than the Heatles. Uh, with again, with the Steph Curry fans and the LeBron fans and Laker Nation, they would be absolutely insane. I would like to see it as a sports person, as a sports fan. It would be insane for me to watch that every night. Um, that would be absolutely spectacular. I say make it happen, guys. I don't know if it will. But if he doesn't sign that extension, that four-year, $200-plus million extension, where there's smoke, there's fire. Because remember James Harden turned down that two-year, $100 million extension from the Rockets, which would have tacked on two more years plus, you know, this year, then the two years, plus two years he tacked on. He turned that down, and then not too long after that, it was give me to Brooklyn. If Steph Curry doesn't sign that four-year, $200-plus million extension, LeBron James may be the best recruiter on planet Earth because he could be pulling Steph Curry to the Lakers, either via trade if he doesn't want to wait another year or via free agency. But up next, 
we're going to shift to college basketball and talk about what's going down there with some news and the women's and men's final four. Hello, everybody, and welcome back into the show. And now we're going to talk about, like I said, right before the break, a little college basketball, um, plus the men and the women's final four. The breaking, shocking announcement that I thought was an April Fool's joke at first uh, was Roy Williams, a longtime college basketball coach, a total of 48 years, I believe he said he's been coaching. Uh, including 18 at Carolina. Um, he was Kansas before that for 13, 14 years. 33 years as a head coach, I believe, was the number. He ultimately has decided to retire at age 70 from the sidelines. Um, he said a few you know, powerful things, and he said he no longer feels like he's the man for the job, which I always said, I was, when, he, when the announcement came, came out, the announcement came out, rather, and... I realized it was real. Um, I said these last couple of years have been hard on Carolina as a program. Um, not Brad Darty hard. Jesus Christ. Um, not Brad Darty hard, but as a program, it was it was hard. You had the Cole Anthony year where that team is supposed to be really good. And that team was really average. Um to where they didn't do a lot of success. And then this year, you go through COVID, and for the first time in his coaching career, he's bouncing the first round. Roy Williams has always won at least a game in the NCAA tournament. Um, this year, he's bouncing the first round. And maybe he just thinks the game is passing him by. And um, he ultimately decided to retire. Uh, like I say, he left an absolute legacy following, really, Coach Smith. Because uh, he was he was uh, an assistant coach under Dean Smith for ten years, and then including the 1982 championship with Michael Jordan hitting the shot, or they called him then Mike Jordan hitting the shot uh, to beat Georgetown. He goes to Kansas, leads Kansas, and then turns down the Carolina job in 2000. Right after the coach who replaced Dean Smith retired, then he takes it up in 2003 when they fire Brad Darty. And he's been there since 03, uh, leading the program 17, 18 seasons. It is absolutely amazing what he was able to do in his career. 903 wins, rank him third or fourth all time in wins. He was the fastest coach ever to reach 900. He was never going to catch Coach K because he was never going to coach that many seasons past Coach K. Like, he's a thousand wins or so. 100 wins or so, sorry, behind uh, Coach K. At most, the average team, you'll probably win 22 games out of Carolina a year. Coach K would have to retire, and you have to go five-plus years winning 22-plus games. It would have just been hard to do, especially asking already 70. So, I mean, retiring where he is now um, is still a feat in the top five. Maybe if he coaches another couple of years, he can be number two because uh, Bob Huggins is going to pass him real soon. Bob Huggins is still coaching at West Virginia. So Bob Huggins is going to pass him real soon. And I believe Bob Huggins might be only a game behind him. So he's going to get passed by Bob Huggins really, really, really quickly. But he is 
a spectacular coach. He was one of the pillars of college basketball for my for myself growing up. You know, you 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 knew Roy Williams was at Carolina. You knew Jim Beheim was at Syracuse. You knew Jim Calhoun for the most part of my uh, youth was at Connecticut. You knew my Coach K, Coach Krzyzewski was at Duke. Um, you just knew you knew Calipari. Well, I had Calipari in Memphis and Kentucky. But you knew Kyle, Coach Kate, Coach Cal was always going to be there. You know, you just knew there were certain pillars in the sport. Roy Williams was one of definitely those pillars. As one half of the biggest college basketball rivalry in the country, Tobacco Road with Duke and Carolina. It was Coach K versus Roy Williams. Um, but hey, Roy Williams say, I retired beating Duke twice. I may have not had a great tournament, but I beat Duke twice. And that's all a Carolina fan like myself, uh, a Carolina supporter like myself is good with you beat duke twice we're good we can go two and 30 two and 22 whatever it is we we beat duke twice i'm i'm okay <laughs> so uh thank royal williams thanks coach williams for beating duke twice that was always spectacular which odd as a pelicans fan i find myself cheering for a lot of duke players but hey while they're in college i don't like those guys um so thanks royal williams for an amazing career and enjoy retirement i don't know he said he don't know what he's gonna do so he's probably gonna hate it um, because he's been, like I said, coaching for 48 years, head coach for 33, uh, with the last 17 or 18 being in Carolina, his alma mater, where he played for Coach Smith, uh, Coach Dean Smith. So he'll figure it out, I guess. Um, and look to, I would, I would love hearing him in a booth, uh, doing games, doing color commentaries, but we will definitely see what happens there. We already talked about those NCAA declarations with Kay Cunningham. Josh Christopher is the headline so far. Obviously, you've got the G League Night guys with uh, Jonathan Kaminga, Jalen Green. You have um, the guard from Alabama. Can't think of his name right now. He's already declared. And the breaking news into the show was Sharif Cooper from Auburn has declared and will forego his eligibility to uh, into the enter into rather the NBA draft. But we have two Final Fours. We have the Women's Final Four and the Men's Final Four. We're going to start off with the Women's Final Four, where there is a little bit of history happening. Uh, a little bit two months after Black History Month and a few days past Women's History Month. Um, in the Women's Final Four, we have Stanford versus South Carolina, which is going to be a barn burner. And you have UConn versus Arizona. Now, the history I was referring to is this is the first time in NCAA women's tournament history that two black women will be the head coaches in the same Final Four. That is Dawn Staley of South Carolina, who will be in her third, and Adia Barnes of Arizona, who will be making her first Final Four appearance with her Arizona Wildcats squad. Now, obviously, you have pillars of the game coaching at Stanford and UConn with UConn having Gina Auriemma. But this was a huge accomplishment for the women and people of color in general, uh, because, you know, the pay gap in this country already with women coaches being or women employees being paid less than the men. You add a minority onto that woman coach or women employee, female employee, and the gap gets even wider. So this is huge for all of those different reasons. And the games are going to be great. You have some elite players on the floor led by Paige Beckers of UConn. I always, just, I always say Bukers because it looks like Bukers, but it's Beckers. Who becomes the first freshman 
ever to win the AP Player of the Year. She also was the first UConn player ever, I believe, to be our third player ever to be named to first team all America by the AP. I mean, Paige has changed the game, for lack of a better term. She has changed the game. She's doing things that other UConn greats have not done. And just think about those UConn greats. You have Maya Moore, Diana Taurasi, Brianna Stewart, just to name a few. Tina Charles, I believe, is a UConn great. And they are she's doing things they have never done. And so huge shout out to Paige Beckers and what she's doing. Uh, her best friend from childhood, Jalen Suggs, is doing his thing at Gonzaga on the, on the men's side. And so it is huge for what Paige and the UConn women are doing because when you have such a young player in Paige, like I said, she's like I said, she's a freshman. She's an absolute freshman and she is killing the game right now at UConn with her ability to play. And like I said, first freshman ever to win the uh, AP player of the year for the women's side. You know, it's fairly common on the men's side now because of usually the best player in the country is a freshman. So it's a little it's a little odd when you have uh a freshman win on the women's side. It's, it's odd now when the men's side, but it's not a freshman, not a one and done freshman. Uh, but there is a little oddity. It's, it's historic, actually. It's never had done before on the women's side until Paige did it this year. Uh, she is pushing to be the first or the second, sorry, uh, female freshman to lead a national champion in points per game. That uh, following Cheryl Miller who I believe, if the WNBA was around during her day, is the greatest female player of all time. I believe she's the most talented female player of all time. Uh, her game, her numbers are staggering, but she would join a list of, oh, I'm sorry, this would be the third female, my apologies, so Shamik Holdslaw of Tennessee. She would join Cheryl Miller in 1983 with USC, Shamik Holdslaw, 1996 of Tennessee, Carmelo Anthony of Syracuse, 2003, that magical run, Anthony Davis in 2012 for Kentucky and Jaleel Okafor in 2015 for Duke. Now, if I had to pick winners, I would go UConn and South Carolina for the winners of the game. Uh, now, this is not there's no disrespect to Arizona or Stanford. You know, Arizona has great defense. They can really uh, attack people on the perimeter. They can knock down shots. And so, uh, especially with McDonald, she can really, uh, Ari McDonald, she can really knock down shots. She's been shooting 61% from three the last couple of games. And so she can also play good as well on the defensive end. Uh, for Stanford, you have some height there with with Ashton Pretchell, a 6'5 sophomore. She is starting to play a, a little bit better. And they have they are knocking down they are three so far. They are fifth in the country total uh, on the season with 38, 38.3% of their threes have made. And they have a trio, their big three, making 43.2% of their threes this season off the bench. So absolutely spectacular what they can do from the three-point line. And so, like I said, they have a shot. But I would lean with the experienced South Carolina and the flat-out talent of UConn to get to the final four although although the media 
on ESPN has Stanford in a sweep over South Carolina and UConn advancing over Arizona. I think UConn is right. I would lean South Carolina. I just think Don Staley might have one more trick up her sleeve to get to the uh, NCAA championship game because that South Carolina team plays excellent defense. And when you can play excellent defense, you can do almost anything. And so I believe that they will get to the college championship game on the women's side with off the strength of their defense, even though they're not a great three-point shooting team, which is something that could affect them down the road. On the men's side, we have Houston versus Baylor in a Texas Final Four. And we have UCLA, the Cinderella still dancing against Gonzaga. So we're going to start off with Houston and Baylor. Now, Houston is a little bit of a Cinderella. That Yeah, they were a higher ranked seed than obviously UCLA, but they were not expected to be here. And they have pulled off some great games to get here to face what I believe is possibly the best team in the tournament in Baylor. And I don't think Houston has much of a shot here. Now, I could be wrong. I could definitely be wrong here. It wouldn't shock me if Houston. It wouldn't shock me if Houston were to get into the championship game, but I would definitely uh, favor Baylor. Now again, Houston was the two seed, so by no means is this a foregone conclusion that Houston is going to lose this game or that Baylor's going to win this game. I just think Baylor has too much defense and too much size to really be uh, detoured from winning the game so baylor is very aggressive around the rim they are a top defensive team even though numbers may not suggest it they turn their they're the third ranked team in terms of turning their opponents over and they are number six in the country in terms of getting steals so that is a huge advantage when you have a team like houston that likes to dribble drive that likes to kick out if you can turn them over and force steals that'll be huge to have your offense ready to roll so I would pick Baylor in that game. And then with UCLA versus Gonzaga, I don't think this is going to be close. I really don't. Look, UCLA's had an amazing season. They've had a great run. They lost their last four games entering the tournament. There was debate whether they even make the tournament. And because they were in a play-in game, you can see that they were one of the last four teams in. Their last two teams are the at-largest. They played 2-11. They played Michigan State in the play-in game. And, they, again, they lost Deshaun Nix, who's also one and done from the G League night. Uh, he de- opted out, like, right before the, I mean, like right before the season, he decided to go to the G League. Um, and then their best big, their best scoring big, gets injured. So this is supposed to be, like, a retooling year, rebuilding year, uh, culture year, you know, make sure everybody, got, everybody knows how to play. They had no one and duns. Bring everybody back. Add a couple of stars. UCLA makes the run they're making now next year. Well, instead, they took on the personality of their coach. They're tough. They're scrappy. They fight for everything. I mean, they just held Michigan to 49 points. They just won an Elite Eight game scoring 51 points because of their defense, their tenacity, and their toughness. Though That UCLA team, they I mean, I know UCLA, they don't hang banners for Final Fours. They, they might. But, you know, they want so many championships on the John Wooden. Maybe they don't. Who knows? In terms of hanging banners for Elite Eight, uh, for Final Four appearances, most schools do. So maybe UCLA does as well. 
But this team deserves to be up there. Definitely, as mentioned, one of those great, maybe not from talent perspective, but one of those great UCLA teams, uh, you know, that some legends played on. And maybe, they, again, they don't have an NBA superstar on the roster. Not one. There's no Kareem Abdul-Jabbar on this roster. There's no Bill Walton on this roster. There's not even Alonzo Ball on this roster, more than likely. There's no Russell Westbrook or Kevin Loves, but they have some tough, scrappy guys who can really fight, who can really compete. Because the last time they were in the Final Four, they had two NBA All-Star, possibly Hall of Fame players. Russell Westbrook's a Hall of Famer. Kevin Love has a very good case at it. They, those two are both on the floor when they played Derrick Rose's Memphis team, coached by John Calipari. So that was the last time UCLA was in the Final Four. So kudos to them. The run ends here. It dies this game. They will not see a national championship. I can assure you, Gonzaga may win by 30. <laughs> UCLA scored 51 points and won their game against the Michigan Wolverines, coached by Jawan Howard. They scored 51 points. Gonzaga had 47 at halftime. Can UCLA get to 80 to win the game? Because UCLA has, a, UCLA has legitimately great defense. They're tough, they're scrappy, they're gritty. They can play defense. So if I give you a defensive, let's say you hold them eight points under what they probably will score. So if they probably say, in my head, Gonzaga to 85. Okay, your defense holds them to 77. 75. I'll give you 75. Can you get to 77? So far, the answer for UCLA has been a resounding no. So because of that, you're in a spot where you physically can't score enough points to keep up with their offense. You've got no shot here. And so I would say that Gonzaga is going to blow UCLA out to meet Baylor in the championship game. And then Gonzaga is going to win the championship game by three or four points um, and mark Gonzaga's first national title. Put this as the greatest Gonzaga team of all time. Mark Few's instant legend. And the whole landscape of college basketball is changed because Gonzaga is an older team with really, to be honest, one, one and done. That's Jalen Suggs. He came there with an, an, the anticipation of being a one-and-done, which is a rarity. The last one-and-done they had, I believe, was Zach Collins, who was not there to be a one-and-done. Uh, nobody had ever one-and-done at Gonzaga before Zach Collins, and he left unexpectedly. Uh, when he announced, it was a shocker because, again, no one had thought anybody would leave from the team as a one-and-done, and now Jalen Sose would be their second. Uh, but he went to school anticipating to be a one-and-done. So I would have Gonzaga uh, winning, beating Baylor in a championship game. And I would have UConn beating South Carolina in a, a, a baby upset with South Carolina beating Stanford. But I would have UConn beating South Carolina on the women's side. But up next, we're going to have our best for last, which is going to be baseball is back. Alrighty guys, welcome back in. We're now we're gonna have our best for last, which is going to be baseball is back. And well it is. Uh just a little contract news. Francisco Lindor and the New York Mets agreed on a 10-year, $341 million contract for Lindor to become the face of the franchise. New owner Steve Cohen said he was coming in prepared to spend. He said it straight up. We're gonna 
He looked around. He said, look, the Dodgers are stacked because they spent a lot of money. The Yankees kicked the Mets' butt and owned New York and still own New York because they spent a lot of money. If I'm going to compete, I'm going to have to spend money because doing it through the draft in baseball is a seven, eight-year process. I mean, I mean, it's not like football where you can build through the draft and two good drafts, you have a playoff team. In baseball, in two good drafts, you have a playoff team in four or five years. If it's all the only way you build. So in order to really do it, you have to trade for your talent, buy your talent, or have older guys in the pipeline already that you can pay to be your talent in baseball. It's not a it's not a real draft to win kind of system. And so Francisco Lindor, Lindor got his money from the New York Mets. Opening day had his first COVID pause. Uh, I can't think of the team off the top of my head right now, but they had their first COVID pause. Uh, it wasn't a cancellation, it was a postponement due to COVID. The Nationals were involved. They believed they may have had, they may have three to four positive COVID tests. And so uh, they were involved. Their game was postponed. The earliest they can play it is in like three or four days. Um, so that'll be something to watch out for as baseball is trying to go through a full season this time. How many series they have to move and shift, where they have a massive outbreak, things of that nature. Uh, the Los Angeles Dodgers are absolutely stacked. They added pitching. They um, went out and got and gave Mookie Betts his money. He's secured. Curry Clayton Kershaw is obviously back. All their talents back. They are absolutely stacked. The Yankees are loaded too. Those guys are bombing away. No, uh, even though they lost last night and open a night, open a day rather, they are bombing away. The Bronx Bombers are back. They're fully healthy. Um, if they can keep their health up, they will be a definite contender because that is why I have meaning in the World Series. I have the Los Angeles Dodgers facing the New York Yankees in the World Series um, with the Yankees winning for the first time in a very long time. Uh, the Yankee in by Yankee standards for the first time in a very long time, the, the New York Yankees hold up the Commissioner's Trophy uh, for Major League Baseball and celebrate. Hopefully in the Bronx, but if not, celebrate in LA, uh, winning the World Series this season. But that is all I have for today's episode. I hope you guys enjoyed it. This is our most versatile episode in a long time. We've been a two sports show. Uh, past two or three weeks this week we got in four different sections of sport and technically five sports because women's basketball and men's basketball are often separated for their own for the right reasons and so four to five sports we talked about today um so this is a loaded show for sports heads who really enjoyed it i hope you guys enjoyed it i hope you guys tell your friends subscribe remember itunes spotify and apple Podcasts. tell your friends about the twitter page at jtime sports And I hope you guys have a great rest of your day. This is your host, Justin Jackson, signing out.